0: Welcome to
1: Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne, and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Elsie Kennedy. It's been a bit over a month since Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced the federal budget. Today in Earth Matters, we're going to zoom in on some of the projects that were funded in that budget, in the name of the environment. First up, we're going to hear from Dr. Brad Smith, campaign director at the Nature Conservation Council, about a special grant for the Vales Point Power Station near Port Macquarie. We'll also head to the NT to hear from Dan Robbins from Protect Country Alliance about the federal budget boost to fracking in the NT, and Nikki Ison, the Energy Transition Manager at World Wildlife Fund, is going to talk us through what the budget means for the renewable energy industry in Australia. First up, I asked Dr. Brad Smith to introduce us to the Vales Point Power Station and why it was in the news before this recent budget announcement.
2: So Vales Point is a pretty old coal-fired power station and it's located on the shores of Lake Macquarie, so just south of Newcastle uh, in New South Wales, which is quite a populated area to be siting a coal power station that pumps out a lot of pollution. The power station is expected to come to the end of its 50-year lifetime in around 2028. And certainly with you know, the climate imperative, uh, we think the power station needs to close much sooner than 2028. But that's the opposite of what uh, the owner of the power station would want. Um, it's owned by um, Trevor St Baker and Brian F- Flannery. And Trevor St Baker is often in the media um, you know, promoting coal power Um, He makes a lot of political donors. He was once a a candidate for the Nationalist Party himself. Um, And he wants to keep the power station running as long as it can. Um, So he's been seeking money um, basically from anywhere he'll be able to get it from to help him to upgrade the power station or to refurbish it, um, to keep it going. That seems to be his strategy, and he's been pretty open about that in the media um, over the years.
1: And so... When the federal budget was announced this year, um, can you tell me what did Vales Point receive and, and what was it for?
2: Yeah, so Vales Point was really singled out in the federal budget and they received around $9, billion, $9 million, $8.7 million grant um, to do some upgrade work at the power station. Um, one of the units, they want to um, upgrade the turbines and, uh, and also some other work. Um, installing some high-pressure heaters. So basically, the idea of the, the grant is it's meant to increase the capacity at coal at the, at the Bows Point coal power station so that um, you know, during peak times in the grid, the power station can put out more power uh, into the electricity grid. But, uh, and so they'll do that by upgrading the turbine, putting in a new turbine. Um, but, you know, this... So I think first step is The federal government just handing out $9 million to a coal-fired power station is outrageous. And and just to lay out how outrageous it is, Trevis and Baker bought this coal power station back in 2014 from the New South Wales government for $1 million, so less than the price of an apartment in Sydney. It's now worth, according to the company estimates, around $700 million. So they've made $699 million on this transaction. And now they're going to the federal government to get another $9, billion, $9 million of taxpayers' money. Um, I find that completely outrageous. Um, but anyway, the implications of the upgrade will mean that the power station can produce more power, um, which will mean it can produce more pollution as well. If they run that power station you know, to, at, at peak loads at higher at high capacity than they currently run it, then, of course, it'd be putting out more carbon dioxide, And also putting out more of all these other pollutants they're concerned about. Um, And the other thing that I'm worried about is that that this is helping the power station to extend its life. So you know we know with climate change we need to have a steady phase out of coal power and a steady phase in of clean sources of power like solar and wind backing them up with with storage like batteries and pumped hydro. Um, But these kind of handouts actually slow down the transition and help, you know, this coal baron to keep his power station running even longer. So that's a big concern as well.
1: The upgrade is also going to reduce carbon emissions by a small amount, 2%, I, I read. Um, some people might say that could be a positive thing. Uh, what, what, what do you say to that?
2: You know, part of this whole process is that a lot of this has, has is going on in a kind of with a with a veal of secrecy so um, you know the vales point power station has to apply for a grant no one else has been asked to apply for that grant that's a that's a special um grant just for them and what the criteria are for that the federal government will use to assess whether this is a good use of money is also um, something that the public haven't been told about which i think is you know a pretty basic standard of accountability for nine million dollars of taxpayers' money um, so trying to interrogate what the energy minister angus taylor is, is saying when he says this upgrade will save a hundred um i think it was a hundred thousand tons of co2 each year oh, or over 10 years 100 100,000 tons over 10 years i think uh per year over 10 years it's a million tons um that's it gets quite hard so um there's a bunch of assumptions that must go into that calculus and and One of the assumptions is that the coal power station one doesn't extend its life and run for any longer because uh, if the power station ran for even three months longer, it would already completely undo any energy savings from having more efficient turbines. Um, So yeah, that's a big assumption that this won't extend the life of the coal power station by even three months. Um, And the other assumption is that during that time, they won't run the power station to its higher capacity. Um, so, like you said, this is a 2% efficiency upgrade, but it's also a 5% um, capacity upgrade. So, if they do run the power station at a lower at a lower capacity, then, yes, it will have a very slightly lower um, rate of emissions. But if they run the power station at its higher capacity, we'll be seeing more emissions going into the air. And I think the danger with all of these kinds of comparisons is if you're comparing... This coal power station um, with the efficiency upgrade compared to the coal power station without the efficiency upgrade you say oh it's a 2% improvement. But if you compare this power station to any other source of power, whether that's gas, hydro, solar, wind, the amount of emissions coming out of this coal power station are just astronomically higher it's a very dirty way of generating electricity so. You know that that risk is there if if this upgrade helps the power station to stay in the market even three months longer then actually the federal government is handing out money to encourage more pollution not to reduce it
3: mm.
1: and i know that the nature conservation council has been talking a bit about air pollution at vales point um what are the concerns around that
2: well particle pollution is is probably the main one that most Air pollution uh, specialists are concerned about. Uh, but there's a range of other things like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides that also add to the pollution burden. And um, you know, we have some limits in Australia for those, all of those pollutants. Um, and sometimes we we breach the, the levels. Um, but for a lot of these pollutants, our standards in Australia are far behind other places in the world. Um, our particle pollution standards are very good. But our standards for sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides are shocking. So, for, an ex- for example, at Vale's Point, the limit that they're allowed to emit at that station is around six times higher than other places in the world. If you were to run a coal-fired power station in Europe, US, Japan, even China or India um, have much higher standards for sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide pollution.
1: Will the upgrade fix any of the issues around the dangerous pollutants that
2: that the power station is is releasing? That's No. The, the short answer is no. So all they're doing is upgrading the turbine. And one of the things we're calling on the company to do is upgrade their pollution controls because that won't fix the climate issue. So this, this plant is still a problem for climate change, but at least they can reduce the, um, the local and, you know, Sydney-wide, actually. So the, the pollution plumes from this power station and the others around it. Um, have been shown to travel into, around the whole Sydney region. Um, at least you could reduce the health impacts and, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in health costs every year from the power stations by just upgrading to international best practice pollution controls. But no, the, the company isn't proposing to do that. They're just um, trying to increase the capacity of the plant to put in a new turbine, um, you know, which would extend the life of that turbine. Um, but yeah, not improve any of the pollution controls, unfortunately.
1: Mm. And that brings me to my last question, which is, yeah, what, what are the next steps for your campaign?
2: We've had some really exciting news this week in New South Wales with a new um, electricity infrastructure plan that's um, going through Parliament right now as we speak. And um, it's, a, it's a big change and it's a really um, an ambitious change to bring much more renewable energy into the New South Wales electricity system. So what that will mean is that when these coal power stations do close, from an electricity point of view, we'll be ready. We'll have enough capacity in the New South Wales system that the power stations, will, the coal power stations will be able to close uh, without causing any big disruption to um, the price or the reliability and security of our electricity supply. So, um, so that's really great news. And then in terms of Vales Point power station itself, um, There's a couple of things that that we're really keen on trying to make sure happen. So the first thing is pushing back on this federal government grant. So like I said, the Vaz point. um, Owners still have to make a submission to the government and the government still has to finally hand over the money. So we'll be working to try to expose the problems with this. um, This grant and and do what we can to make sure it doesn't happen. Of course, the federal energy minister is Angus Taylor. Um, So you know, he's, you know, he's no um, stranger to scandal. And um, even though this grant is pretty scandalous, um, you know, there's a chance that they'll decide to hand over the money anyway. Um, that's the first thing. And then the next thing, like I said, is around um, trying to improve the pollution controls at Bale's point. Um, because, you know, really, there's, there's kind of two things that need to happen here. One, we need to bring forward the closure dates of these coal power stations so that they're polluting less and so that we're moving to cleaner sources of power. But while they are still in the grid, and like I said, these guys plan to keep running this power station as long as they can, um, we want to try and reduce the, the health impact. So, um, yeah, we'll be working with, with other groups to try to convince the EPA to ratchet up some of those uh, pollution licence limits um, and try and make sure that Val's point is is getting a bit closer to What's considered best practice in terms of limiting, especially things like the sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide pollutions that are pretty easy to control. They can reduce those that pollution by well over ninety percent. Um, yeah, if they just are required to fit those kinds of pollution controls.
1: That was Dr. Brad Smith, campaign director at the Nature Conservation Council, talking about a special grant for the Vales Point Power Station near Port Macquarie. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today we're taking a look at some of the projects funded in the federal budget in the name of the environment. Next up, I spoke to Dan Robbins from Protect Country Alliance in the Northern Territory about millions of dollars allocated in the budget to prop up fracking in the NT. I asked Dan to describe the Beetaloo Basin for us, one of the largest gas reserves in the world and one of five gas basins the federal government wants to open up to fracking.
3: The Beetaloo sub-basin is like a 28,000-square-kilometre area in the middle of the Northern Territory that holds around 70% of the NT's shale gas deposits. And so we've seen keen interest from a range of gas companies over the last few years. But this area also includes ancient groundwater systems, uh, billions of years old, that communities rely upon still today for their water, their town water in Catherine, places like Elliott, Mataranka, Tennant Creek some of your listeners might be familiar with and the Betaloo Basin is largely made up of Aboriginal land. so native title has been granted to a number of uh, areas across that area of the Barclay region. It's also large pastoral leases, cattle stations, horticultural enterprises and remote Aboriginal communities and it takes in the traditional lands of a dozen or more Indigenous groups. So the Jawan, Alua, Jingali, um, Nanji are just some of them. Uh, I've just come back from a community near Marlinger uh, the, where the Mudborough people uh, are working hard to stop fracking on their land. And then out towards Boralula, you've got the Garawa and Yanua people. Uh, and so all of these groups have uh, been working with us and with, with each other to try and stop this kind of onslaught of gas that um, keeps flashing up in the media every day and federal government seems to be very supportive of it. But the good news is there's a lot of resistance and opposition there on the ground.
1: Mm. And in the federal budget, $52.9 million was allocated to support the gas industry, which which includes um, opening up the Betaloo Basin. Um, what, what can you tell me about how that money will be spent?
3: Yeah, so the federal government in the latest budget said they'll provide $52.9 million over four years uh, to support a gas-fired recovery and strengthen the economy by taking steps to unlock gas supply is what they're telling us. So this means funding for the initial studies around pipelines and uh, transporting gas to market. Uh, So this includes $28 over three years to establish five strategic basins. So uh, one of those basins is the Beedaloo Basin that we're talking about today. And I imagine the initial money will be spent on pre-feasibility studies for large um, pipelines. Um, Also, uh, some of the initial environmental studies that they're supposedly doing at the moment Um, But it also includes giving money to industry, ex-industry men who have arrived here in the Territory, consultants uh, like Circle Advisory, who are being paid about $1.3 million at the moment. And their job is to go into Indigenous communities and and ask them what their five, 10-year plan is economically and how they might want to benefit from the gas industry. So the Territory is crawling with the uh, gas industry consultants at the moment who are out there trying to spruce gas in very remote communities. And this federal money will be used to pay some of those, um, some of those consultants to do that initial work that I guess makes it easier for gas companies. Once the trucks start rolling in.
1: Mm. And that the budget was announced about a month ago now, um, what, what's been happening in in that month what what kind of movement has been happening in in communities and and around these gas wells
3: yeah so I guess in the past few weeks we've seen companies like origin energy um, and smaller players like Empire Energy on the ground with their drill rigs um, rushing to get data out of the ground so they're not racking per se it's more vertical drilling to get um, data as to how much gas and what kind of gases can be found in these areas and uh, empire energy are just trying to hold up a flag and say look we've found some gas so we deserve this federal money everyone knows there's this pot of money in canberra and they're, they're all rallying for it uh, origin energy rush to to find some data and prospective gas but they haven't been as forthcoming they haven't really found as much as they were looking for. Um, We've also had uh, a number of companies uh, talking about asking for federal money around building large pipelines. So whether that's Gemina, who's a big pipeline uh, company across Australia, uh, they've been suggesting some extensions to their pipelines um, heading through this area of the Beedaloo Basin. Uh, and then we've got Central Petroleum who are down just below Alice Springs. They want to run a pipeline from uh, the Amadeus Basin just below Alice Springs all the way down to the Moomba area of South Australia. So mm. we've just seen um, media release after media release of gas companies, not so much um, saying, yes, we'll start tomorrow, but just saying, if you give us this amount of money, we can build these pipelines. So there's a lot of people uh, rushing to get this, this federal money at the moment.
1: Okay. And what kind of movement's been happening? Um, I know that in October, a group of native title holders split from the Northern Lound Council, um, wanting to have more control over the negotiations that are happening with, with gas companies. Can you tell me what's what's happening there?
3: There's a number of... Um, traditional owners and native title holders who are not happy with the Northern lands council. They don't feel like they're being um, represented well enough. They don't feel like their opposition to fracking is really being heard. So uh, a new prescribed body corporate or a new um, Aboriginal corporation has just been set up just in the past couple of weeks actually. And uh, I met with them on Sunday and the Melange Aboriginal corporation Uh, includes uh, community members and native title holders from Minieri, uh, Tennant Creek, Marlinger, Elliott, Baralula, Matarenka, and they've all come together uh, in this meeting of native title holders to say, look, we we don't want fracking on our land, we don't want these companies coming in, and we don't want some separate body speaking on our behalf anymore. It's really going to throw a spanner in the works for a lot of these bigger companies who are rushing to get in, and also for the federal and territory governments who are trying to push fracking and fast-track fracking at the moment. Mm. Origin at this stage
1: is not recognising their, um, their authority over the land, is that right?
3: Yeah, there was one, uh, there was one native title holder from around uh, Minyeri who asked a question at the recent Origin Energy AGM, it was held online so you had a lot of um native title holders kind of zooming in from their own communities here in the nt and uh well, there was one um native title holder who was told look we're not drilling directly on your land so you don't have a right to speak uh that that upset a lot of native title holders who uh who see that a lot of this a lot of these lands are connected, especially by the the ancient underground water systems. So, if they're drilling sixty kilometres away on Jinglee Country, uh, that's still going to affect um, Mudborough water. And 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 this is a situation that's happening across. But I guess the Origin Energy, it's not in their interests to understand these things. I would argue that Origin knows fully well uh, that their drilling is going to affect a whole range of different Aboriginal nations and language groups. But they're really playing the same game that a lot of these fracking companies have always played, which is trying to divide and rule and divide and conquer and um, trying to play off areas against one another.
1: Mm. And that's a good segue to my last question, which is uh, where, where is the campaign going from here for protecting the Bedaloo?
3: had a number of meetings with native title holders and landholders across the Beedaloo Basin over the last few weeks. And everyone seems to agree that if they can't get this gas to market, if they can't get their gas uh, from the Beedaloo Basin to the East coast or to, to Darwin, then it's going to be unviable. And so, uh, a lot of communities feel like, their strength lies in the, the ability to stop these pipelines. So uh, we're asking people at the moment to donate to this Stop the Pipelines campaign. Great.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for, yeah, taking the time for a bit of a chat. No worries. That was Dan Robbins from Protect Country Alliance in the Northern Territory talking about the federal budget boost to fracking in the NT. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today, we're looking at how environment funding was spent in the federal budget. Our last guest on today's program is Nikki Eisen, Energy Transition Manager at World Wildlife Fund. And my apologies, the audio in this interview is a bit scratchy. It's entirely my fault. um, But Nikki has some really good things to say, so take a listen. I asked Nikki to recap what the budget means for the renewable energy sector.
0: Uh, You can take the budget and what we're seeing from the federal government out of the budget as either glass half full or glass half empty and those are both legitimate ways of seeing seeing the the budget. So from a glass half full perspective there were some really substantive commitments so the 1.5 billion dollar modern manufacturing fund um, which had a couple of their priorities that could help accelerate decarbonisation so clean energy um, technologies um, and real support for the food and beverage industry which is an area that you could decarbonise quite quickly um, were quite positive. There was also the commitment to refunding ARENA and we knew that there was a, a debate inside the federal government where whether they were actually going to do that so it was very good to see uh, that commitment to ARENA uh, and there were some other uh, good programs uh, that we know you know, before we started our work on a renewable recovery at WWF that uh, weren't on the cards, so a new round of um, funding for microgrids um, which would help um, support Aboriginal communities and other remote communities access clean energy. So, you know, there were, there were some good things in there. From the glass, and then I suppose the final part from a glass full perspective is actually there was only $100 million worth of funding to dedicated fossil fuel projects. Um, so 50 million for CCS and 50 million or a bit over 50 million for, for five for the gas piece. Um, and if you compare that to you know, the clean energy spend um, uh, and the recycling spend and some of the nature spend, it was a very small amount. So you know, that was the glass half full take. The glass half empty take is that you know the amount of clean stimulus is very much smaller than we're seeing from other countries around the world so we calculate that that's about 96 dollars spent per person over the next decade on a clean stimulus whereas the analysis from the uk is it's more like 500 and our South Korea it's more like a thousand dollars so if we want to be leading the world in uh, the clean energy transition, which we absolutely should be, um, then we're really lagging behind a lot of other countries. And then the other glass half empty piece is there was a lot of ambiguity in some of those announcements. Um, some of the funding could be, could go to false solutions like hydrogen from fossil fuels, um, or more investment in CCS, or even more in uh, support for gas infrastructure. So they there is a lot of ambiguity in some of the funding commitments. Uh, and then finally, certainly that gas commitment you know, could unlock even more funding um, in a gas fire recovery down the track. And so it's certainly you know, there's a big risk there.
1: You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environment Justice Program. I'm Elsie Kennedy. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is normally produced in the studio of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country and hopefully we'll be back there soon. Today it came to you from my home, also on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.